Hello, well, good morning. I hope you're doing okay. It's been quite a week, hasn't it? And I guess it's a season where many of us are asking some big questions. Uh, we're asking big questions about where our nation is at. Uh, we're asking questions about whether or not we're still going to have connection with Europe in the same way. Uh, we're even asking questions about whether or not the United Kingdom uh, is going to stay united. Um, and at the same time, many of us also are asking big questions about our personal lives. Um, so some of us here um, will be asking questions like, where am I headed in life? What does God want me to do? Um, what are his intentions for my life? What is it that God is doing here? And so we're asking some big questions. And where there are big questions, uh, we need some big answers, don't we? So I think it's very appropriate that this morning we're partway through our series called Storylines. And uh, we're wanting to get a sense of the big themes in the Bible, some uh, perspective on what the theologians call the meta-narrative, the big story of what God is doing, and to figure out how do we fit in to all that God is doing. And I'd love you to think of it a bit like this. Um, have any of you ever been to the beach, to the seaside with a toddler? And um, they love going to the beach, don't they? And they'll be, they'll be digging and they'll be perhaps finding a little crab or limpets in the rock pool, and they love getting absorbed in the detail. But as we get older and we mature a bit more, we love the detail, but we're also able to stand back and see the big picture, to get a sense of the vista, um, the spectrum before us, to take a look at the ocean and the skyline and all the rest of it. So when we look at Scripture, yes, we want to look at the minutiae of things. We want to mine the treasures in little passages of Scripture. But equally, too, we want to have an understanding of the big story, because the big story gives us the big answers we're looking for. And so that's what we're doing this morning. We're going to look at something of God's redemptive plan across human history. I'm going to try, try and cover over 12,000 years of history in about 20 minutes. So it's possible I might have to skim some bits, but do bear with me, all right? But we're going to look at one of the big storylines across Scripture, and it's the theme of God's presence. So I'm really excited to be looking at that. We've been looking at the theme of God's presence right the way across the spectrum of Scripture and his interactions with the, with the people of Israel. Um, but it's a story of real highs and lows. It's a story of real peaks, but also real troughs. And I was thinking about this this week, and I was thinking, well, on average, about 80% of us in this room will be visual learners. So I thought to myself, uh, how do I help those of us who learn visually by seeing things really sort of grasp this? And um, I guess not surprisingly, my mind went immediately to DIY and tools. Um, so uh, I have actually got step ladders that my friends here are going to bring down the front and they're going, to, they're going to help us gain a sense of the highs and lows, the peaks and troughs of Scripture. So let's thank these guys as they come down the front here. So we're going to have that one there. Brilliant. Thank you, chaps. That's brilliant. Thank you so much. So, um, so if you get the idea, so these are the peaks and the troughs of the story of God's presence right throughout Scripture. Um, I guess you could also see it as other peaks and troughs. So this could be the, you know, the peaks and troughs of the pound against the euro. But right now, we'd have to dig a hole in the ground to actually represent where the pound is at. So let's not do that. Uh, and obviously, when, um, whenever it comes to DIY, you know me, um, I, I'm always deeply concerned about health and safety. You know, that's really me. That's where I'm at. So um, what I did is I went online and I sought to educate myself about how to use ladders properly. So as we are going to be using ladders up the front here, this morning, I've done a bit of research, and uh, you'll see the results on the screen behind me. The first thing I realized is that when you're working with ladders, you've always got, to, always got to transport them safely. That is very important. I think this guy must have had a, a trail of decapitated cyclists behind him. Um, the next thing I learned about using a ladder is it's always important to make sure the bottom is well secured, yeah? 
Some of you are feeling sick just looking at that, aren't you? But the good news is, um, so long as you wear a high-vis jacket, you're always going to be safe, um, <laughs> even if you're working above a stairwell. I hope he's good friends with those guys. And then lastly, if you don't have a stepladder, it is okay to improvise. <laughs> this, this guy here, he, he, had, he had neither a stepladder nor a hedge trimmer. But what he did have was a ride-on lawnmower and a mate with a crane. So you've got to respect that. So you're very reassured now, aren't you? Now, now that I've been through the training process, let's dive in. Are you all right? So we're talking about God's presence. The first thing to say is that God is everywhere. God is everywhere. Psalm 139 famously says this. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I free from your, flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. And it goes on to say, if I make my bed in shore, in the depths, you are there. Proverbs 15.3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. The technical term for this, God being everywhere, is that God is omnipresent. But having said that, whilst God is everywhere, there do throughout the Bible seem to be various degrees of his presence, if I can put it like that. Different levels of intensity of God's presence. This is known as God's manifest presence. I love the way Bill Johnson puts it. He says it like this. The God who is everywhere loves to turn up somewhere, which is a great little phrase, isn't it? And so what I want us to do is is get a sense of where does God turn up? Uh, throughout scripture. And uh, we're going to start us out on a high. So we start out on a high in the Garden of Eden. So we're going to start right on, the, right on the high up here, Garden of Eden. And obviously what we're seeing here is that Adam and Eve get to connect with God in a very real and a very personal way. There's a lovely little poetic phrase in Genesis 3 which says this, God walked in the garden in the cool of the day. It, it gives this idea of an unhurried, intimate, relaxed, pure fellowship with the Lord. It was life-affirming to Adam and Eve. And let me just say, that is the way you're intended to live. You were made to enjoy relationship. Yeah, with friends, with family, but most of all, with God himself. Because it's that relationship that makes sense of all the other relationships in your life. It's that relationship with the Lord that gives you the strength and the security you need for all the other relationships. You're designed to be someone who knows God. That's why if this morning you say you don't really know who God is, that's why it can sometimes feel like there's something missing in your life because you were designed for a relationship with him. So it's off to a good start, but of course it wasn't to last. Already by the time we reach Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve make the decision to mistrust God. They eat the fruit and Eden quickly is followed by the fall. So we're on to a dip immediately, straight away. Adam and Eve are cast out of the Garden of Eden. And it's not just that they leave the garden, but they end up leaving God's presence. Genesis 3 isn't just about losing a cushy gardening job. It's about a broken relationship. Forget parting company with the EU. This causes cosmic shockwaves that we've been feeling the effect of ever since. You might think to yourself, well, why couldn't God have just have accepted them and forgotten about it and just sort of moved on? Well, let me put it this way. Most of you will remember this guy who's going to come up on the screen here, Anders Breivik. Back in July 2011, so nearly five years ago, this man 
detonated a bomb in downtown Oslo, which killed eight people. But worse than that, he then made his way across to a small island in Oslo and came across uh, a group of young people who were on a political summer camp there. And he shot to death 69 mostly young people. He went to prison unbowed and unrepentant. Imagine having this guy round your home for tea this afternoon. Perhaps imagine trying to have a conversation with him. Perhaps sat next to him on your sofa. You couldn't do it. You just couldn't be around him, could you? Just couldn't just pretend that everything is all right. Because his sin, his wrongdoing is like the elephant in the room that you just can't get around. It would be horrible. It would be awkward. Well, now consider that God is infinitely more holy and more pure than you or I. So it makes sense that we couldn't occupy the same space as a pure, holy God. The two just, it's oil and water. We could not mix. There had to be a separation. So therefore, Adam and Eve had to leave the garden. The thing is about sin is that it breaks relationships every time. The next time you're tempted to sin, think to yourself, which relationship am I going to damage through these actions? Is it going to be with my friends, with my family, with my spouse? Is it going to be with God himself? The writer John Ortberg puts it like this in terms of when he sins in his relationship with his wife. He says this is how he used to relate to her. Sometimes, if we were with other people, say at a party or something, and she said something I didn't like, I would get a little distant and polite with her and make more eye contact and grow a little warmer toward whomever else we were with. My mind was conflicted with thoughts of love, but also thoughts of bitterness. My feelings were split between intimacy and coldness. My will would move away from her in anger until things got really bad and she cried, and then I would feel guilty and move back towards her. My face and my tone of voice would create the effect on her that I wanted without ever having to be totally open myself. Now, of course, as a married man, I can't identify with that in any way whatsoever, but I'm sure you know of other people to whom that would apply. Maybe it's nothing dramatic when you sin, when you're angry with someone around you. Maybe there's not obvious acts of commission, but the acts are of omission. You don't shout or swear, but instead, you distance yourself a little bit. You withdraw your heart and become really just polite and nothing more. We damage relationships every time we sin. Mankind, as a result, was in a complete and utter mess, utterly hopeless, with nothing that we could do to help ourselves. But the good news is, we're about to come to another peak. Because where we are unfaithful, God shows himself to be faithful. He remains faithful even when we don't. He is the rescuing God and chooses to use a bunch of nomads as a vehicle to launch his rescue plan. I wonder, any of you seen Forrest Gump? Anybody seen that movie, yeah? Laugh is like a box of chocolates. You remember that one, yeah? So um, Forrest Gump, for those of you who haven't seen it, is essentially the story of a nobody who becomes a somebody. Without being disrespectful, the people of Israel were a nation of Forrest Gumps. They were a nation of nobodies, sort of nomads and slaves, who God chose to pour his love out on. And he reaches out to Abraham and the patriarchs, and he rescues Israel from 400 years of slavery in Egypt, culminating with Moses being given the stone tablets of the law. Well, then God gives instructions to the people of Israel to put these tablets in a box called the Ark of the Covenant, okay? I've got a picture of it coming up here on the screen. This is the Ark of the Covenant. 
drawing of it just before Indiana Jones stole it. So um, the Ark of the Covenant up here. Well, what's the significance of this? Exodus 25, 22 says this. God speaks to his people and he says, There I will meet with you. On the Ark of the Testimony, I will speak to you. God chooses to lay it down his presence in a specific place at a specific time for the benefit of these people. The God who is everywhere turns up somewhere in this finite space, in a tent in the middle of the desert. If you like, it's, it's Father God stooping low to interact with his people, stooping down to connect with them. Because we can't reach up to God. We have to rely on him reaching down to us. So it's another high there with the Ark of the Covenant. But no sooner do we have a high than we're hit with another low again, another dip. We read in 1 Samuel 4 that what happens is that there's a national tragedy as the Israelites are battling against the Philistine army. And uh, this time they manage to lose the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, That's a bad day right there. Uh, It says this, So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The ark of God was captured. So rather than living with a sense of awe and wonder that the God of the universe has chosen to be present with them, instead they take the ark of the covenant, and they try and use it as like a talisman in their battle. They try and use it as like a good luck charm. But in doing so, they lose the presence of God. It gets captured by the Philistines. So we're immediately on to another low there. They've they've got this idea that, well, God is on our side, and we've got God like in our back pocket, which means it's it's our trump card to beat the enemy. What was going on? Well, they were trying to use God for their purposes, use the presence of God for their plan. Sometimes you and I want God to fit into our plan for our lives, don't we? I remember when I was at Sitthorn College, um, I I, um, had this girl called Catherine who I I really fancied and wanted a date Um, and I managed to convince myself that because she went to to church at Christmas and Easter, therefore she must be a follower of Jesus just like me and it would be okay to go out with her. Needless to say, it didn't work out as I planned. What I was trying to do there was get God to fit into my plans for my life. Have you come up with an idea, a job, a person you want to marry, or a company that you want to start. And what you're saying is, God, will you get on board with my plan? Instead of saying, Father, what's your plan, and how do I get on board with that? The point is that whilst God may have chosen to identify with the people of Israel through this box, God wasn't constrained within the box. The Father comes to meet with us, but it's on his terms, not ours. So once again, the people of God are in a dip. Fortunately, the Father continues to be faithful. You're seeing a bit of a theme here? The ark is returned, and God gives David the vision to build a proper temple in order to house it, not just a tent. David thinks to himself, if I'm living in a palace, how can I live here and yet God's dwelling in a tent? So he has this dream of building this amazing temple. And he collects all the building materials, and in a wonderful act of spiritual legacy, he passes on the baton to his son Solomon for him to build it. 2 Chronicles 5 says this, When all the work of Solomon had done for the temple of the Lord was finished, he brought in the things his father had dedicated. And then we pick up here. Um, They raised their voices in praise to the Lord and sang, He is good, his love endures forever. 
Then the temple of the Lord was filled with a cloud, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord fills the temple of God. What a, what a praise and worship time that was. That's a, that's a massive high point. I guess looking back over the course of Israel's history, you'd have to say if there was a zenith, if there was a, if there was a, a, a pivotal moment, if there was a high point for the people of God, it was this moment when the Spirit of God descends on the temple in this cloud. God was amongst them. The temple became God's address on planet Earth. That was where he was located. But God's purity, God's otherness, still meant that only one person once a year, the high priest on the Day of Atonement, the day when we get at one with God, could go into the Holy of Holies. So God was there, but he was still distant and unapproachable for the vast majority of the time. So much so that the high priest even had to have a rope tied around his waist so that if God struck him dead, nobody else would have to go in and get him. They could just haul the high priest out. That's that's the situation. But God is there. He's there amongst his people. No prizes for guessing what happened next, though. Complacency led to sin. And instead of shaping the culture around them, the people of God started being shaped by it, worshipping other local gods, some of which had prostitution as part of the worship, and some, a few, even had child sacrifice as part of their worship to their pagan gods. Not only that, but the people of Israel abused the poor and turned the temple into a place of commerce rather than of worship. Again and again, the father in love sends messages saying, stop this course of action. You're headed in the wrong direction. So he sends prophets like Amos and Zephaniah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. The list goes on and on as God really beseeches his people, don't go this direction. But they largely ignored the prophets. Because after all, they were the people of God. And they had the temple. God was with them. Until eventually, God's presence actually left. Do you know the really sad thing about this? The really sad thing about this is that the people of God never even noticed. They were so caught up in what was going on in their lives, in their practices. They exchanged relationship for ritual. They, they just hung on to their rules and regulations instead of intimacy with the Father. The prophet Isaiah um, writes into this time when God has left the, left the temple and says that um, about the Babylonians coming in. And so what happens is the Babylonians descend into Jerusalem, they destroy the temple, break it down, and they essentially kidnap all of the ruling class and take them off to Babylon into a foreign land. And so there in exile, the people of Israel write the book of Lamentations. And they write these words, By the rivers of Babylon we sat down and wept, when we remembered Zion, which is Israel. They also wrote a number of other Boney M hits, including Ra Ra Rasputin (laughs) and Daddy Cool, I'm Crazy Like a Fool. So so after 70 years, true to his word, God moves once again in redemption. He, He rescues the people from exile. They're brought back and they do build a second temple, but it's never really a patch on the first There's no encounter with God in the same way. The father has manifested his presence to to his children, and each time along the way, they've blown it. Then what happens is there's a massive gap of 400 years of silence where all they've got left is their ritual and their religion. But all of a sudden, after 40 decades, God once again reaches out his hand to them. 
I'm going to get Leif and his mate to come down the front and help, help us with this. Because what happens after 400 years is we see Jesus enter the scene. We have an awkward prophet, socially awkward prophet, wearing a camel hair shirt with bits of locusts stuck between his teeth. He starts saying the presence of God is returning. And we need to understand that Jesus turning up on the scene is a total, total game changer. It's the watershed point in human history. He's not just a, a nice moral teacher or a good man. The Son of God has turned up on the scene. It meant the presence of God was here in new measure and on a different scale. So I felt we needed a new stepladder to help us with this. Let's thank Leif and Tim for us, really. I was going to set this up myself, but they heard my DIY stories and wouldn't let me. Um, so, does anybody know if I'm insured for this at all? But yeah. Okay, so, so Jesus enters the scene. Now, notice what, what happens here. You see Garden of Eden? I reckon we're just about parallel there. Because with Jesus being born, for the first time since the Garden of Eden, God is walking amongst his people. And he can be seen and spoken to and touched and heard. So God, in his amazing redemptive plan, has brought us back full circle and restored to us what was once lost. Does that make sense? So Jesus coming onto the scene changes everything. But of course, it doesn't stop there. God's plan went way beyond just restoring what we had. He had something far more in mind for us. Because Jesus lives his life, but then dies, is buried, and resurrected. And he then takes us on to a new height of God's presence. Take a look at the scripture that's going to come up on the screen here from 1 Peter. It says this, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that's Jesus for us, that he might bring us into relationship with God. Every barrier that has been between us and the Father has now been dealt with. No more sort of once a year on the Day of Atonement just for the high priest. God is available to all of us. We can all experience him and all know him. Not only that, John 14, 23 says this. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him and will come to him and make our home with him. So we don't just get the manifest presence of God, we now get the indwelling presence of God. You get God living in you. You don't just get to see him, you get to know him in a deeply, deeply personal way. The situation has gone from us going to the temple to being the temple. That's kind of good news, isn't it? So the issue now becomes not where do you go, what job do you have, or even what talents have you got. The issue is, who are you? Now, you are now a son and daughter of the king. God's plan for redemption was so powerful that your spiritual DNA, if you like, has now been transformed. You are now a change, renewed individual. We don't always realize the impact that we have, but we carry with us the presence of Jesus. Um, a few months ago now, um, just before uh, a Sunday morning service, we had a lady in real distress uh, rush in uh, to see us. And um, uh, me, myself and a, a lady from the church sat down and we spent a few hours with her. 
It turned out that uh, she was uh, the victim of a domestic violence situation, uh, ongoing for, for a long time. And uh, as we sat and listened to her, we got her to tell, tell us her story. It turns out that she, she's not as far as I was aware a believer, follower of Jesus. Um, she'd never been to a church meeting here. But what she had done is come to a secular course that was run here um, some months before. Uh, but she, she said to me, I said to her, well, how come you, you came here this morning? And she, she looked at me and she said these words. She said, I've never been to church here, but I came here for another event. But somehow, when I was in danger, I knew that I should come here. I knew that I would be safe in this place. What was happening there? Well, my guess is that when she came for this secular thing, she was met by one of our reception staff who carry with them the presence of Jesus. And then she probably had coffee served to her by one of our brilliant coffee shop staff members who also carried the presence of Jesus with them. And then she needed to find which room her meeting was in, so I'm guessing that one of our brilliant facilities team who also carried the presence of Jesus directed her there. And all the while, something in her spirit registered that these people are safe. She saw in them the spirit of Jesus. You don't get to just go to the temple. You are the temple. You carry with you the Holy Spirit. That woman has never, as far as I know, been to church before or since. But she's encountered Jesus in you. But the thing is, it gets even better than that. Let me leave you with this parting thought. I think there's an even higher awareness of God's presence, a a more intense environment of God's presence. Matthew 18, 20 says this, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. This traditionally is the verse that Christians use when not many people turn up to a prayer meeting. (laughs) We... We encourage ourselves that, never mind, where just two or three are gathered at 6 a.m., the Lord is with us, and we just sort of, okay. And in doing so, we miss the power of this verse. The point is there's a different level of God's presence when we gather together. 1 Corinthians 14 says that when you get together and people who don't know Jesus turn up and see you, they'll fall on the floor and the secrets of their hearts will be undone and they'll say to themselves, surely God is among you. I want to suggest to you that we're not just solo Christians. You know, it, it makes no sense to be a solo Christian. It's, it's a bit like saying, well, I'm You know, I'm a solo, synchronized swimmer. You know, Christianity is a team sport. We have to do it together. And when we gather together, midweek or in a big meeting like this, there's a spiritual synergy that happens. There's an increased intensity of the presence of God that takes us way beyond just individual interaction with the Holy Spirit, but something corporate that we reflect who Jesus is when we gather together as the body of Christ in a way that we never could do on our own. A few months back, I was at a, a conference center, Father Hart conference, and in the final session, uh, I felt sure that I should cut my talk short, and we just worshipped as we finished. But in the songs that we used to finish, we had person after person come down the front, and they spoke about how they'd been healed from tinnitus, a ringing in the ears. Another person spoke about how tunnel vision had gone in that moment. 
another person who had macular degeneration, which is an incurable disease in one eye, so blind in one eye, um, they went to wipe their good eye and discovered that they could now see out of their bad eye. We had blind eyes opened and deaf ears opened. The scandalous thing, I hadn't even thought to pray for anybody. <laughs> what was happening there? The Spirit of God was there as we gathered together. The thought I want to leave with you this morning is that when we get together, God turns up. And therefore, anything can happen. Anything can happen amongst us. I want us to raise our expectation that when we, when we go from this place, we carry with us the presence of Jesus. And people will see that and they will encounter him. But when we get together, there's no telling what God might do amongst us. Anything can happen, and to be honest, frequently does. So we now get what generations have longed for. You're a son, daughter of the king. You carry his presence. But when sons and daughters get together with their father, well, then all heaven can break loose. Because the God who is everywhere loves to turn up somewhere. And he's here right now.